Well, would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3. For those who may be visiting today or new to our church, we are on a journey through the scriptures that started in Genesis and will continue to Revelation as we look at the big ideas, the big theme of the Bible called the story. And we are now in chapter 23 of that particular book called The Story that looks at these different uh, accounts of scripture. And today we're going to talk about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I'd like to pray for us as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. And we come to it again with eagerness, with joy. It is amazing to read these stories of Jesus. And we thank you that they were written for our benefit. They were written so that we could learn about your son and come into a relationship with him. And Father, I pray for all of us this morning that you would give us just a real freshness to hear what you have to say about your Son. And help us to look and to see how these accounts of Jesus really touch our life and challenge us to walk with him each day. We ask that in his name. Amen. When you think about Jesus' ministry, it is really quite remarkable that in just three short years, he would launch a movement that would literally change the world. And we are a part of that movement today. I mean, those of us who have come into a relationship with him as Savior and Lord are part of his church, his kingdom, that is continuing to advance throughout the world. And how do you explain that kind of dynamic change apart from the power of God? I don't think there's any way that you can I mean, if you were to look at world history and you look at what's gone on in the 2,000 years since Christ was here, uh, you would see how nations come and go, how empires rise and fall, how maps change. I mean, even in our own lifetime, the map of the world has changed in terms of the nations that are there and no longer there. And if you think of the United States, even our history is very short compared to that period of time. World leaders come on the scene for a moment and then are gone and pass into history. But the church remains. The church remains. And God's kingdom, as the scripture says, will endure forever. And today, around the world, there are millions, literally billions of people who would say that they are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a good description. When we come to the scriptures, we see that a disciple is a follower of Jesus. A disciple is more than a student, more than a learner. That's part of it. We learn from Jesus. But a disciple is someone who has chosen to follow Jesus in that kind of committed relationship. Most, if not all of us in this room, would say that we are followers of Jesus. But there may be some here today who still have questions, who have doubts about that, or there may be some who are listening online today and are going, you know, I have questions about what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm not sure yet. I haven't made that commitment yet, and that's okay. What I'd like us to think about this morning are three questions that I want you to consider as we look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And these three questions are this. One, why should we follow Jesus? Two, how is following Jesus different than following anyone else? And three, where are we leading the people who are following us? All right, let's take a look at those. Number one, why should we follow Jesus? 
Well, if you have your Bibles, let's take a look at Matthew 3. I'd like to read for us the first few verses there. It says that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So here you get this picture of John. John the Baptist came preaching in the desert, and his message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. John had been sent by God to be this forerunner of the Messiah, the one that Isaiah talked about, the one that Malachi said would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But John was kind of a strange character, as many of the prophets were. I mean, you think of him living in the desert, wearing these clothes that were rough and uh, were of camel's hair, uh, eating the things that he could find in the desert, locusts and honey, and calling people to repent to turn from their sins and to be right with God. And people came from all over. They were drawn to John. They were drawn to the message that he spoke as God was about to do something amazing in their time. And then we read that Jesus came to be baptized by John. It's in verse 13. And when Jesus came to John, John wanted to deter him, wanted to say, no, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? I mean, John's baptism was for sinners. Why would Jesus need to be baptized when this was a baptism for sinners? Well, the reason was that Jesus was baptized to identify with us in our sin. If he was going to be that representative for all mankind, he had to be like us. And so he came to be baptized for sins, to identify with us. And he said to John, let it be so for now. It is proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was baptized. And as soon as he came up out of the water in verse 16, it says at that moment the heaven was open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine John hearing the voice from heaven thundering from the heavens? And hearing this affirmation that this one who was with him standing there in the water was God's one and only Son. Those words would be repeated again on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' glory shone through and Peter and James and John would see him there. But there would be one addition to that statement that this is my Son whom I love. God the Father from heaven would say to all of us, listen to him, listen to him. For he's the one who has the words of truth. He has the words of life. He has the power to save Why should we follow Jesus? Because God has said this of no one else. There's no other religious leader of whom God has said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. God didn't say that about Abraham. 
He didn't say that about Moses or David or any of the other great men in the Old Testament. He hasn't said that about other religious leaders. He hasn't said that about Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or anyone else. But he did say that about Jesus. Why should we follow Jesus? Well, the first person to reveal the identity of Jesus is God himself. There is no one else like him. And I think about Jesus' baptism too, and I I want to go back to that by way of application. If Jesus chose to be identified with us in baptism, and he chose to do that, to be identified with us in our sin, how much more important is it for us to be baptized, to identify with him? I mean, that's why the Scripture calls all of us to be baptized, to believe on Jesus and to be baptized, to identify ourselves as followers of Christ, that we have chosen Him as our Savior and Lord. And if you've not been baptized, I would encourage you to do that. I mean, every Sunday, I mean, every summer, we have a great uh, celebration service out here in the backyard of the church, and we have a baptism service. And if that's something that God would put on your heart to do at that time, we'd love to have you be a part of that baptism service. Because everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord should be baptized in obedience to his command. And then immediately after his baptism... We read in chapter 4 that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, there is a sense in which he is reenacting the temptation in the Garden of Eden. He will now be tested by the devil just as Adam was tempted by Satan. And again, if Jesus is going to represent all of mankind, then he must win this battle. If he is going to be the one who can accomplish our salvation and pay that penalty that we deserve, then he needs to be innocent without sin. And we read in verse 2 of chapter 4 that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and said, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. Jesus is there in the wilderness. He's gone through this time of fasting. Who wouldn't be hungry after 40 days and 40 nights? And he had the power to turn loaves or to turn stone into loaves of bread. But he had chosen not to exercise the independent use of his power, 
but to live his life as we should in dependence upon God the Father. And he lived in the power of the Holy Spirit as we should live and walk every day in the power of the Holy Spirit. He came to fulfill all righteousness, to be that one who would be the obedient Son of God. And three times the devil tested him. Question, if indeed he is the Son of God, why don't you show your power? Offered him a shortcut to having all the kingdoms, all that this earth has to offer. But Jesus would take none of it. Three times he was tested. Three times he replied with Scripture. And all of the quotes that Jesus used come from Deuteronomy chapters 6 to 8. Now that's significant. The book of Deuteronomy, those chapters are where Moses recounts the history of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. And when they were in that wilderness, remember how they grumbled and complained against God? Ten times they said, you know, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? I mean, at least there we had leeks and onions and we had fish and we had food to eat. And they grumbled and complained about God's provision, his manna, about his leadership, Moses, about where he was taking them to the promised land. And here you have Jesus quoting from those very passages of Scripture to tell us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what we see in the Scripture is that where Adam sinned, Jesus, the second Adam, triumphs over sin and over Satan. And whereas Israel, as God's son, grumbled and complained in the wilderness, Jesus obeyed and followed God in the wilderness. Why should we follow Jesus? Because Jesus is the Son of God, and he has the power to free us from our sins, to set us free and to give us eternal life. Secondly, how is following Jesus different from following anyone else? You know, if you think about it, we all follow someone. I mean, many of you are on Facebook and, uh, you know, check that out every day. Or you're, you're on Twitter and you're following what someone else is doing. Or you're staying in contact with family and friends. And, and you do that. You're, you're checking in every day on what's going on or what are they doing or how are things going. And you're posting things about your own life. Many of us follow financial advisors or investment advisors or tax advisors and we listen to what they say and then we put it into practice in our life. Many of us follow athletic teams. We have our favorite sports teams that we like or athletes and we want to check on what they're doing and maybe it's online or maybe you still get a newspaper and the first thing you pull out is a sports page. We all follow someone. We all have things that we are interested in and pay attention to. And it might be with our peers or friends that we're following what they're doing. Or it might be with family members. So how is following Jesus different from following someone else? Well, Jesus calls us into a personal relationship with himself. We don't follow Jesus from a distance as though, you know, he's kind of over there and we're doing our own life. And once in a while we may check in with him. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to be in conversation with Him every day in prayer. He wants us to know His Word and get to know Him better as we read the Scriptures and listen to what He has to say. And Jesus calls us to a loyalty 
that is higher than any other loyalty. He tells us that he is to come first in our life, even before family, even before friends, before our work, before our hobbies, our interests. Jesus comes first. And when we do that, when we surrender our life to him as Savior and as Lord, he begins to put everything in our life into perspective. And he actually, instead of taking away from those things that we really love and are most important in our life, our family, our friends, our marriage, or relationships like that, he blesses them. He enriches them. He gives us the wisdom and the strength we need to do what is right and to follow him in obedience. And Jesus called his disciples to leave everything to follow him. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, I'd like to read for us part of that when he called the first disciples. Matthew four eighteen says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, and Peter and his, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And we think about that. Here are these men going about their work, their daily activities, relationship with their family, their business. And Jesus called, and they left it all behind to follow him and to come into this relationship with Jesus as their Lord, as their master. You know, every rabbi in that period of time had followers. And it was considered a privilege to follow a rabbi. But generally what the rabbis would do is that they would look for the best and the brightest. They would, you know, see who's there at the synagogue. They'd see who's there at the temple, who's going through the schools for studying the scripture, who showed great promise in terms of their knowledge of the word. And they would pick the best of the best to be their followers if they could. It would be highly unlikely that they would choose a fisherman like Peter or James, or John, or Andrew to follow him. They certainly would never choose a tax collector like Matthew to be one of their disciples. And certainly not a political zealot like Simon the Zealot who became one of the twelve. Jesus was different. Jesus calls people from all walks of life. And the most important thing about us is our relationship with him. He calls us, whatever our occupation may be, wherever our status may be in the world, it doesn't matter to him. What matters to him is our heart. Is it open to him? Will we walk in obedience and relationship with him? And he forgives our sins and he makes us a new person in Christ. But Jesus does call us to put him first above everything and everyone else in our life. We all need Jesus. You know, John makes that very clear in his gospel when he tells the stories of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. And he puts them back to back in John chapters 3 and 4. And I'd like you to turn there if you would. 
In John chapter 3, we read the story about Nicodemus. And I'll just read a little bit of it for us. John 3, beginning at verse 1, says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin, this body of 70 that ruled at that time. And he came to Jesus at night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now think about that. I mean, here you have, you know, Nicodemus. He is a religious leader, a Pharisee, a member of the ruling council. He is well-educated. He has a Greek name, which indicates that he had been trained in both kind of Greek philosophy and education as well as the Hebrew schools that would teach him the Scriptures. And he chose his Greek name to be known by, probably as a little bit of a saddest thing, or maybe he liked that name. Maybe it was less common than his Hebrew name. And uh, he was a teacher of others in Israel. In fact, he is called, you know, the teacher in Israel. So he's respected, he is devout, he is religious, he prayed, he studied the scriptures, he gave to the poor, he did everything that you were supposed to do to have a relationship with God. And Jesus comes to him and says, you must be born again. No one can see the kingdom of heaven except you be born again. And it was a concept that was totally foreign to Nicodemus. I mean, Nicodemus was like, say what? I mean, what? What are you talking How can that be? How can, a, how can a man enter his mother's womb and be born again? I mean, that's impossible, Jesus. I don't get what you're saying. And Jesus explained to him that what he was talking about is a work of the Holy Spirit. That we cannot enter into God's family. We cannot be part of his kingdom unless we have been born again by the Spirit of God and receive new life in Christ. And that's not something we can do on our own. That's not something we can manufacture. That's not even our choice. It is our response to the Spirit of God when He begins to open our eyes and we see and our heart is made alive. And we respond to His grace and turn to Him for forgiveness. That's why you know you may be here today. Or you may be listening online, and you may be religious. You may have gone to church all your life. You may have studied the Scriptures. You may pray. You may give an offerings. But have you been born again? And has the Spirit of God touched and renewed your heart in such a way that you know that Jesus lives in you? And you've seen Him change your life and your life demonstrates the fruit of the Holy Spirit and you've seen and experienced His joy and His love, His grace, His forgiveness. You must be born again. And it is to Nicodemus that Jesus gives the clearest statement of why He came to earth in John 3.16. When He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's why Jesus came. And you look in chapter 4 at the other extreme, if you will. Here's Jesus talking to a woman at the well. He has chosen to go through Samaria, a part of Israel that good Jews, you know, they avoided. They didn't want to go there. They didn't want to be unclean. 
Samaritans were looked down upon because they had intermarried with pagans. They had intermarried with unbelievers. And they they didn't worship in the temple in Jerusalem. They worshiped on their own. And so Jesus is there and he's talking to this woman who is a Samaritan. And she not only is a woman, which a man did not talk to a woman in public in those days, but she is an immoral woman. He tells her about her life. She's a woman who's had five husbands. Quote, husbands. And the man she's living with now is not her husband. She is an outcast. We aren't even told her name. And you think of that contrast of Nicodemus who has status and respect and honor. And you think of this Samaritan woman who is an outcast, unnamed, unloved. You know, she's just not one of those that would be accepted, you would think. And yet Jesus comes to the least of these. And when Jesus spoke to her, and told her that he was the Messiah, she believed and she brought others to see Jesus. In verse 39, it says that many from that town believed in Jesus because of what she said. Rich or poor, well-educated or uneducated, religious or irreligious, known or unknown, we all need Jesus. And Jesus wants all of us In Luke chapter 9, he made it clear what it costs to follow him. In Luke chapter 9, if you put that up, he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. We need to die to self that we might live to Christ. And he says, forever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There is a cost to following Jesus, a cost to say no to self, to lay down our life and to take up our cross, to walk in obedience with him. And there is suffering that is a part of that life. There are disappointments, there are hurts, there are challenges that come when you walk in obedience to Jesus. He didn't say it's going to be easy. He didn't say everything would always go smoothly in our life. Not at all. But he tells us that if we will do that on that day when he comes in the glory of his Father and the angels, he will welcome us as his disciples. How is following Jesus different than following others? It is a personal relationship that we enter by being born again. And it is a commitment that demands everything that we have. So where are we leading the people who are following us? Let's take a look at that last question. We all have a circle of influence more than we may realize. We have friends and family members. We have people we work with. And maybe you're an employer. Maybe you have people that work under you. And we all have an influence on others. The choices we make, the words we use, the things we say and do, even that uh, medium of Facebook or Twitter, if you're using that, you know, there are people watching what you say and do. And you can use all of those things to be a witness for Christ. By our life and by our words, we want to point other people to Jesus and the difference that he has made in us, in our world, and can make in their life. 
And I think of these examples that we looked at today. I think of John the Baptist who said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every Hebrew would understand what that meant. They knew what a lamb meant. They knew what a sacrifice was. And he was using a symbol, a figure of his speech to describe who Jesus was. And he said of Jesus that he must become greater and I must become less. Or I think of the woman at the well who said to her town, she said, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I mean, she didn't know everything about Jesus at that time. She had just met him, and yet her heart had been touched in such a way that she wanted others to know him too. And we all have a story to tell, and it doesn't matter whether we are a new believer or we've walked with God for many years. We have a story to tell of his grace of his love, of his mercy. A story that can point others to Jesus. And I think of the Apostle Paul, who said to his followers, follow my example as I follow Christ. I would hope that would be a statement that all of us would make. If we're a Sunday school teacher or or even as a parent, if we are mentoring or discipling someone else, that we could say, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. And where my life is inconsistent with that, please forgive me and understand that my heart's desire is to follow Jesus completely. And I've still got some rough edges and things that he's working on in my life, but I want you to know I'm running hard after Jesus. I would pray that all of us would have that desire. Friends, we are all followers of someone. And there is no one better to follow than Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the author of salvation. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And salvation is found in no one else. And following Jesus is not casual or passive. He calls us to follow Him with everything that we have to lay down our life for Him. And our great joy and privilege is to be able to introduce others to Christ, to help others to know Him and to grow in that relationship with Him too. Let's pray. Father, would you use us in that way? First and foremost, may we commit ourselves fully to you and to walk with you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for those things that hold us back. And help us, Lord, to live for you in a way that demonstrates our love, our commitment to Christ. And Father, would you use us to be able to introduce others to Jesus? to help them to know you too, to invite them to come and see a man who changed my life. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. In your name we pray, amen.